Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Felipe Nojosa talks to filmmaker Ray Santiesteban about his documentary, The First Rainbow Coalition. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. So good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Felipe Hinojosa. I'm a professor of history at Texas A&M University, and I am just uh, absolutely thrilled uh, to be talking with um, my good friend, colleague, uh, award-winning filmmaker, Ray Santisteban, who's here uh, with me today to, to engage in a conversation. And Ray, I I just introduced you. You had just come to Texas A&M uh, a few weeks ago where we screened your film at the Queen Theater in downtown Bryan. Bryan is a small town, just maybe 10 minute drive away from the university. We had a great turnout. Um, but um, I, I'll let you introduce yourself, man. I know you, you've done a lot of great work and there's a lot that we could go into, but um, tell us a little bit about you before we get started here. Well, uh, my name is Ray Santi Esteban. I'm originally from San Pedro, California. I moved to Texas in 1998, and I've been involved in media production on and off um, since I went to NYU in 2000 and, excuse me, what am I talking about? 1990 is when I graduated. <laughs> but I've done some film cur curating. I used to run a film festival. I did some journalism. I did some radio. Um, but a lot of my work has been public television work, uh, documentaries. And a lot of it's been about movements for social change in the 1960s, including the Chicano movement, including the American Indian movement, and most recently this film, The First Rainbow Coalition, which is about a coalition 1969 Chicago, um, started by Fred Hampton with the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, and a group called the Young Patriots, which were Southern Appalachians. The film is fantastic. If you all uh, have not seen it yet, uh, it it played on PBS, right, Ray, for a little while. I don't know if it's still available on PBS, but um, the name of the film is The First Rainbow Coalition. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. The film is awesome, but we're going to say a little bit more uh, about that later. Um, but Ray, I just want to start off. I, I want to um, you know, I, I want to talk about the film. I want to get into the film. I think everybody's interested in that. Um, but there's so much about you as a filmmaker that uh, really, I think, and especially as 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 I've gotten to know you, and especially when you were here on campus a few weeks ago, talking about uh, the deeply personal connections you have to this film and so forth. Um, so I want to get into that before we we dive sort of into the film. And I just wanted to start off with with a very sort of basic question. What what got you into uh, filmmaking? What was it that that inspired you to to get behind the camera and tell these stories? Well, it's kind of a, it was kind of an odd trajectory because originally um, I was going to community college to become a firefighter. I was, my plan was to get an associate, I think it's associate art degree in fire technology. But everyone in my class, I mean, not everyone, but the vast majority of people in my class were surfers because this is in, L.A. Harbor College is the name of the, of the college. It's right near the water, right near the, it's like 10 miles away from the, from the ocean. Yeah. And I just cannot connect with the surfers, not because I don't like surfing or appreciate it, but just that they just want to talk about surfing and they did not want to talk about fire technology. And so I, I love thinking, that you wanted to talk about fire <laughs> technology, man. That's great. <laughs> I wanted to be like, you know, I wanted to, you know, become like whatever captain, you know, that was my goal. Like I say, if I get an A degree, like I was already certified to be an EMT when I was 18. So my whole trajectory was like to be like totally educated in fires and <laughs> how they start and the chemicals and all that. Um, um, but yeah, so I said, you know, I can't, I can't, these guys are going to get me killed. Is what I came, you know, that was my conclusion. Like these guys are yeah. not taking this seriously. I'm going to end up getting killed in a fire because of these guys. And so I ended up going to the um, the student center where they had at the time these uh, career, uh, what you're good at, like trajectory things, uh, career guidance, career guidance. So oh, yeah. I took this test and then the test came up with like five things that I, you know, was based on my my likes and my dislikes and my strengths and weaknesses that, um, so one of them I think was uh, politician. 
and then it was clergy, and then it was union organizer, and then it was director and then producer. <laughs> there, there, there's a common thread. There's a common thread with all of those things. <laughs> well, sure. it's interesting because a lot of my work has gone into those things, politics, religion, you know, organizing. So that I mean the thing was actually pretty, pretty on on target. But of those things, I said, well, the coolest thing here is directing producing, which is something I never thought of before. So I just immediately said, oh, my my I'm changing my major to um you know, there was no film program there at the community college. So I basically majored in arts. But the good thing was, is, you know, they actually had really good classes there. I took some theater classes. I took some art history classes, that kind of stuff. And I transferred 60 units, ended up um, going to NYU. I got accepted at NYU as a junior and, you know, spent my last two and a half years there and got my degree from NYU in film. While at NYU is when I started hearing about, learning about the Black Panthers, the social movements of the 60s. And I started producing a film there um, on a member of the Black Panthers that had been unjustly incarcerated. His name was Daruba bin Wahad. He spent 19 years in prison and eventually was just released on his own recognizance because upon review by a judge, you know, in uh, in 1990, the, the judge basically said, well, you know, if you had all this evidence in your initial trial, which had been knowingly withheld by the prosecution, he would never would have been in prison. So it was basically a false imprisonment of a Black Panther. And so that's what kind of got me involved in those movements of the 60s. I continued to tell those stories. That story, I think, you know, shed light on the um, the the various uh, programs that the government, U.S. government had, including COINTELPRO by the FBI, including the work of Red Squads to uh, disrupt and dismantle the movements of the 60s. So part of it's been to sort of talk about these um, injustices, but also elevate the work of groups like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the American Indian Movement that were doing good things in the communities in the 60s, but of course faced, you know, this this uh, reaction by the government that essentially destroyed these movements by, you know, 75, around that time, most of them had already, you know, were in steep decline. Right. Did you, so Ray, when you, and I want to get into this whole, the, the transfer to NYU and, and, and getting into the movement. You grew up in California, correct? In Southern California or was it? Yes. In yeah. It's, it's a port. It's a port city. Um, it's there's the, you know, there was this program called the Love Boat. And this that's where I was raised in that <laughs> port. I would see that boat come by all the time. For those you of know? a different generation, that was a great <laughs> yeah. show. You're going back. If you know the love boat, then you're <laughs> you're our age. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're our age. Um, yeah. so, so let me let so did you grow up learning about the Chicano movement? Was that part of it, you know, it really wasn't. I mean, you know, I, I went I went through the U.S. public um, school system, and so I really did not learn about any of this. Um, um, it was all basic history, and that was kind of the reason why I embraced it so much, because I felt that I had been miseducated, that I had been um, lied to, in a sense, because what I learned was that the government of the United States was actively working against um, valid movements legal movements uh, for social change that were not breaking any laws. It was basically an ideological difference they had. And based on that, they tried to destroy these movements. It's like today, if the Democratic Democratic Party tried to destroy the Republican Party, it's it's the same thing. But back then, if you were a Black Panther, it was, it was um, you know, open warfare against movements just because they didn't agree on what they were trying to do. And I think that's wrong. I think, um, and I think lives were lost. I mean, that's basically what we go into in my film, the First Rainbow Coalition, the murder of Fred Hampton, I think is one of the prime examples of the of what this kind of extreme ideology on behalf of the government can do if you start uh, villainizing people and start targeting them for um, harassment and also, um, you know, extra legal um, um, summary, basically, an assassination. I mean, if you yeah. look at the murder of Fred Hampton, I don't know. Sure. In any other country, you would call that an assassination. Yep. We don't use that term here, but I don't know how else to how else you would you would call the events of that evening of December fourth, nineteen sixty nine. It's it's interesting, Ray, to me how these events um, have have really sort of been inserted into pop popular culture. There's a there's a film on. Netflix, I think, called, I don't know if it's You People. Eddie Murphy is in it, by the way. And Eddie Murphy, in a scene in that film, has a sweatshirt that reads, Fred Hampton was murdered. And this is sort of out and and, uh, and just sort of thinking about the importance of 
Chicago to the movement uh, and especially to black power movements and more and sort of ethnic based uh, power movements, Chicano, Native American and others. Let me ask you this. When you get to NYU, the movement is broad, Ray. There's all kinds of reformists. There's MLK and Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez and Reyes Lopez Tijerina. We know this, right? What was it about the kind of power movements, the black power movement that really attracted you as a, as a young student when you first got to NYU? I mean, I guess you could have been pulled into different aspects of the movement, but it was that black power movement that first attracted you. What was it about that? Well, I think, I mean, even look, even today, I would say that, you know, there was, uh, you know, it was a dynamic time. I think that, you know, there's this term revolutionary imagination. I mean, the leaders of these groups were doing uh, a series of social experiments. How do we improve our own communities without money, <laughs> without infrastructure? Without money. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I mean, and, and they were doing it. And so I think, I mean, that's like a lesson I think we keep need, uh, needing to remind ourselves as we try to you know, make change today, as we think sometimes, oh, we need to have this, we need to have this, we need to have our building, we need to have our 501c3, you know, in place. But these were folks, um, you know, some of them had very limited education. Chacha from uh, Jimenez from the Young Lords had an eighth grade education at the time when he founded the Young Lords. He was coming out of a gang and, and, and essentially a gang, uh, a small gang in Chicago was able to transform itself into political movement that had lasting power. I mean, the, the Young Lords had dozens of chapters across the United States eventually, and they were like the main um, grassroots movement in the Puerto Rican community for 10 years, 15 years. And it came out of this gang structure of people just wanting to try to fight to prevent their community from being um, um, falling under urban renewal and being displaced. Yeah. And just that from that one simple idea came a lot of, a lot of things. There were arts programs, there were breakfast for children's programs, there were daycare centers, there were uh, clothing programs. Um, a lot of social service programs came out of that. And that goes, goes back to that revolutionary imagination at the, that was kickstarted by the Black Panther Party. Essentially, the Black Panther Party was the vanguard and every, a lot of folks were following them. They had similar um, platforms and programs. Maybe they would add a couple of, of points to the program, um, but it was a, it was basically the same things. And it was all it was all mostly basic needs, you know, like we want quality, uh, you know, food. We want, you know, uh, uh, education that's meaningful, um, proper housing, you know, this kind of stuff. And these issues are still with us today. So the the I think that's why this film, even though it talks about events of 50 years ago, is still relevant because we're still grappling with these issues um, that were people were fighting against in the 60s. And here we are today, still trying to confront those issues, still dealing with those issues. Um, the, the, the difference now is the country is a lot more diverse than it was back then. And so that's why I think the the uh, film like the Rainbow Coalition film and that concept of a rainbow coalition, a political alliance of multi-ethnic people has resonance because um, there's a lot of potential there for these kind of coalitions because the country is more diverse. Yeah, I, I you know, in, in the classes that I teach, there are, of course, a mix of students, right? White, uh, Latino, African-American, Asian-American, uh, Native American students. They are always, uh, I mean, they know about the Black Civil Rights Movement. There's some that know about the Chicano Movement. Um, but but when they hear about their kind of crossing paths and the kind of coalitions that they built, um, it really, I think, connects with them because that's the world they live in, right? That's the demographics at the university, the neighborhoods that they came from, uh, all of those sorts of things. Um, Ray, I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned uh, Chacha Jimenez, and I want to start. I want to start with Chacha, as I believe we all should, uh, and the Young Lords in Chicago. Um, when did you first? First of all, tell us about the Young Lords, and I want to know when you first heard about them. Um, who brought them to your attention? They, they, you and I have talked a lot about how there's not a lot of. Um, you know, the uh, written material on the Young Lords uh, in Chicago. There's still a lot of research that that needs to be done. Uh, how did you get familiar with them? And then tell us a little bit about their story and, and Chacha coming of age. So basically, I backtracked. I started, you know, my my education about the militant social movements of the 60s started with the Black Panthers and then went to the Young Lords and then went to the Chicano movement. I actually went to AIM first and then to the Chicano oh. movement. So I started looking about my own community probably probably last but I was at a reception 
um, having finished this film on the uh, Black Panther, Daruba bin Wahad, and um, and I ran into Felipe Luciano, who um, for a time was the leader of the New York chapter of the Young Lords. And I was talking to him about something and he goes, oh, you need to talk to Chacha Menes. And I go, oh, well, who's Chacha? And he goes, Chacha's the guy. Chacha's the guy who founded the whole thing. He's the one that told me. He, he, he founded the whole thing, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll find him. And so I, I eventually located him and um, I took a, a, a Greyhound bus to Chicago. This is probably 1990 or so. Were you, were you in New York at that time, right? I was in New York, yeah. Okay. And um, end up meeting most of the young lords that are in the film. And uh, we uh, we actually did a bunch of oral histories with Chacha during these trips. Um, he, you know, and um, I would do interviews inter interspersed. Like he would, inter I would interview him, then they would interview. You know, Chacha was starting his uh, to do his own oral histories around that time. Yes, he's got this a, is the a beginning. large collection at, at DePaul, correct? Yes, he has a large collection of oral histories that he conducted personally. And I mean, he has, you know, major leaders of the movements because he has access, like, I don't have access. <laughs> like, you know, like, um, you know, he can, he can talk, ask anybody and they're going to say, yes, me, I got to try to convince them because I'm like, they don't know who I am. They don't, they don't care who I am. But for him, so he actually, and he also has the insider's perspective. So um, over the years, he probably has maybe 200 interviews that he's done yeah. um, with activists. Uh, but that was kind of the beginning. I met him and then I started, you know, we had tried to get a, a film done about the Young Lords in Chicago, but we were not able to secure any significant funding. I can't and, imagine and, way that, that anybody else would have been, um, or maybe there were, reaching out to Chacha at that time. It just seems so early in, in the timeline, right? 1990, you were already reaching out to tell his story. You must have been one of the first people then to, uh, outside of what he was doing with his oral histories. Is that right? Is that a fair... I, I think so. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody that was around at the time. Um, you know, it was, you know, again, we're, we're, our, our community, I think, is like 50 years behind. You know, we, the, these, this history of the young Lord should have come out 40, I don't know, maybe not 50 years, but maybe like, you know, 40 years ago, there should have been books about all this stuff. But again, you know, I mean, this all goes back to, and I keep saying it, I don't, I don't want to cast blame, but we just need to have more PhDs in our yeah. community. We need to have more historians. We need to have more filmmakers. Um, and again, you know, go, make in the process of making my film, it took twelve years to make that film. That's wow. crazy. That's it. It's it, it's it's a crazy situation. And the main reason was there was a not there was no primary information about the Rainbow Coalition that was out there. Immediately after starting it, after I think a year or two, some chapters started kind of coming out in books. Um, about the Rainbow Coalition, yeah. uh, but by that time, all that information I already knew that because it was all the basic stuff. And, but more information is coming out with every year. And then once the 50th anniversary of the young of the Young Lords happened, which was essentially the year I finished the film. What was that? Um, 2019. 2019. Right? I think it was the 50th anniversary. Then um, you know, luckily more more attention. You know, because the 50th anniversary, more information started coming out. And I wish I had that had 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 that, had that information earlier. Because all that helps, you know, photos yeah. help and 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 things like that. And and like some of the archives in Chicago, that like the Chicago Sun Times, they don't. You can't just go search their photos. Right. Um, you know, they say we have photos, but it's basically for them, and they don't have a, a staff member, you know, available to look. So when the 50th anniversary came out, they started publishing photos, and then you can write them, "Hey, you just published a photo two days ago. Can we use that photo?" Right. 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 <laughs> Because they, you know, they said, oh, we know where it's at because they just found it. But it was literally like, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very, it takes a lot of people power to um, make a, a historical documentary. It takes a lot of money to do it. And that's why you don't really see a lot of them. So in my mind, uh, the historians are, re um, are really important in, in yeah. terms of recording oral histories like Chacha was doing. And also just, you know, trying to start um, grabbing these voices of that generation before they're no longer around because that's kind of the reality we're facing right now. Yes, and I remember something you said when you were on campus a few weeks ago that as a filmmaker, you rely on the historians for the primary documents, for the narrative, for the story, and then you take it in the direction that you're in, in terms of making your film. That was not the case with the Young Lords in Chicago. Um, and to a large degree, uh, it still remains an understudied. I mean, there's certainly more books, uh, you know, that have been published since then. Um, but, 
you know, I'm interested in terms of when you first met Chacha back then, uh, Chacha Jimenez, what was he like? What did you see? What do you remember about him that you thought there's something, this guy's special. There's something, there's something good here. Well, I, I had, um, you know, worked on this film on the Black Panther side, so met a lot of activists. I mean, I mean, you know, the leaders of these movements, there's a reason why they're the leaders of the movements. <laughs> you know, I mean, like if you talk to Bobby Seale, I mean, you, you know, it, the, the intelligence of these people is just profound. I mean, Chacha Jimenez is extremely intelligent. Um, you know, he has the street experience. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a great communicator. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was just, as a young person, like, man, this is an incredible, I mean, you know, you're always looking for stories, like, man, this is an incredible story, the story of the young lords in Chicago and what they tried to do. And this is, this is again, the weakness of that, of not knowing the full history, is that Chacha had mentioned the Rainbow Coalition before, but I'm thinking Rainbow Coalition with Jesse Jackson, because that's the one that right. I was familiar with. I didn't know there was another one before and so the several times you mentioned i just didn't think about it i mean so we had our coalition and i wasn't you know calculating the years correctly because jesse jackson of course is in the early 80s and yes and he's talking about 69 and i just wasn't i wasn't putting two and two together um initially but yeah no chacha is an incredible person i mean if you talk to like someone like kathleen cleaver if you talk to bobby seal i mean I mean, these are just exceptional, exceptional, um, even Bob, Bobby B. I mean, Hi Thurman, I mean, these are exceptional people with, um, uh, you know, a profound sense of um, responsibility for their community. Right. And, um, you know, they have a lot of heart. And, you know, to tell you the truth, you, um, they're also very tough people because you had to be tough to survive in Chicago in 1969. I can't imagine. And, you know, Chacha, so tough, so smart and so approachable, so kind. Uh, I met him, Ray, I think I told you the story. I was doing research at Grand Valley State in Michigan because in his later years, Chacha somehow ends up in Michigan, right? Takes up his whole collection and he starts, he becomes a graduate student at Grand Valley State. And he um, donated his collection to the university there. And I remember doing, and the collection is incredible by the way, uh, I remember doing research there and the archivist uh, asking me if I had ever met Chacha. And I said, no, I've never met him. And she was like, well, you know, he's on campus. And I think I knew that, but, you know, I didn't know him. I wasn't going to bother him. I didn't even know how to get a hold of him. And she was like, I just spoke to him. If you want to meet him, I bet he'd be willing to talk to you. And an hour later, I'm sitting in the student union uh, having a conversation with Chacha Jimenez for that went on for about an hour and a half, two hours, maybe. Um, it was beautiful. And I, I'm I'm grateful to him. You know, I was a, a, a young assistant professor uh, coming up, you know, just trying to trying to learn my way. And, and um, you know, I'm sure he saw me as as maybe a little confused or maybe not knowing the story as well. But he was so kind and so gracious. Uh, I, I always, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, that's one of the you know the um, it's a very difficult thing to make a, a documentary film. But you know, I take um, uh, you know one of the things I'm glad about is I was able to bring like someone like Chacha, you know, to like a sort of general knowledge. Yes. Um, where more people know about him, I see routinely now when people are mentioning, you know, icons of that era, they'll be mentioning Chacha. You know, as part of that, you know, with Dolores Wirt, uh, you know, and, and other folks that were, you know, and Malcolm X. And I think that's exactly where he needs to be. I mean, he's literally a major figure in in um, human rights movement, civil rights movement in the United States. And part of it is, I think, his humbleness. I mean, he, you know, he's, um, you know, he's a very good speaker, but he's also a very humble person. Yeah. And uh, and um, the other factor is, is, you know, he wasn't a major, um, you know, uh, media center like New York or. LA or even San Francisco, there wasn't a big uh, independent film movement in Chicago within the within the Latino community. I'll say that specifically because um, um, that's why there's not a lot of footage of the Young Lords. I mean, it should have been. A, if there would have was more footage of, of them, there would have been more opportunity to tell their story. Uh, it would have been easier to do it. Again, there, there was material out there, but it took a long time to find and locate that material. Now, a lot of it a lot more of it's available because the research has already been done. But when yeah. you, when we started, there was a lot of, not a lot of material out there that uh, was readily there, available. There, did you find more material in New York for the New York Young Lords? Was there more video? Oh yeah, there's a lot more. I mean, there was like three or four documentaries about them that was done at the time. 
through an organization called, I think at the time it was called Newsreel, okay. which was kind of a, a um, they did a bunch a bunch of films about the Black Panthers and the West Coast. That um, they were doing uh, films about militant movements in the six, late 60s, early 70s. So they had a film about the Young Lords, a 30-minute film. And um, there's not a there's not a total of 30 minutes of footage about the Chicago chapter. There's probably like 10 minutes, you know, that we found of footage. I mean, there's there might be more out there again every year. You know, more and more is found. Uh, but again, they just had and they had uh, a lot of photographers. Uh, Hiram Amonist, uh, Myristani. Oh, Hiram, yeah, yeah. That was doing. You know, they had a really great photographer that was doing a lot of photos. And again, it's like the Black Panthers capturing capturing the imagination of the community. Right. That was the strength of the Black Panthers. I mean, that that photo of Huey P. Newton on the on the wicker chair with the with the harpoon. Right. right I mean, right. I mean the, everybody in the sixties had a had a poster of that, and that like you know again it, it captures the imagination of folks. And um, the Black Panthers were excellent at doing that. In Chicago, you had Carlos Flores who was doing a lot of photos of the Young Lords right. as well. And um, a couple of other folks are doing it, but again, some of those folks had had kind of fallen off, and, it, and you had to find them. Like you, right. you saw a photo, and you knew someone took it, but who, like, who took the photo? Yeah, yeah. You had to find those people. So, folks, for for our listeners out there, uh, I'm talking to filmmaker Ray Santisteban, uh, uh, producer, filmmaker, um, you know, all all around great guy. Um, and talking about his his uh, award-winning uh, film, The First Rainbow Coalition. Uh, Ray, let's get to the film. Tell us the, the premise of the film. You mentioned it a little bit in terms of differentiating the Rainbow Coalition from the Jackson 1980s political era to late 60s. Tell us about this film, what it's about, and why the Rainbow Coalition uh, was so significant. Well, the, the Rainbow Coalition was a multi-ethnic alliance founded by Fred Hampton in 1969 Chicago. The three founding movements were, of course, the Black Panthers, which uh, Fred Hampton um, represented, and then also um, the Young Lords with Chacha Jimenez, and then the Young Patriots. And the, at the time, the Young Patriots, the uh, leader was Junebug Boykin. Um, and so, and they were Southern Appalachians that had migrated to um, uptown community of Chicago. And, um, but they were all kind of facing a similar, a similar situation in terms of police brutality, in terms of living in substandard housing, and also uh, in terms of being um, in the uh, facing um, displacement through urban renewal programs, that's specifically the Young Lords and the Young Patriots. And based on that, they were able to find enough commonality to form an alliance. Mm. Now, in some ways, the alliance was symbolic in, in the sense that there was no leader like Fred Hampton was like, okay, we need the, you guys to do this. Fred Hampton was not giving orders to the other members of the coalition, but it was more like, if we're having a rally, we it would be great if the Young Patriots and the Young Lords could go there. If the Young Patriots are having a rally or an issue, the young the Black Panthers and the Young Lords can support them. So it was more informal, but even that, at the sen- in a sense, is bringing a lot more numbers, um, a lot more people to these rallies. And also... Uh, in the eyes of the government, it's, it, it's uh, presenting a potential um, a political threat, because yeah. if you're providing social services in a city run by Mayor Daley, who's you know um, you know run you know it's all uh, what do you call it um, the machine the Daily machine you know if you want a job yeah, you got to exactly. vote for Daily if you're not voting for Daily you don't have a job. <laughs> That's for if sure. they're creating jobs, these are I mean uh, they're creating uh, uh, programs. They're undercutting the, the potential political power of Mayor Daley, and that's essentially the way he saw it. And um, he wanted to undermine these the, the social services and ultimately the organizations that uh, were providing them. Um, I think he also knew that, you know, if you're 18 or 19 year old gang member, at a certain point, you're going to stop being a gang member. And you're going to be involved in politics. And I think he saw the future, which is going to be um, that these organizations were going to get more involved in electoral politics. And eventually they did. And I think 75 is when Chacha ran for alderman. Chacha right. Menes. Bobby Rush ran for congressman later on. He was the co-founder of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers. He became a congressman and he's still a congressman. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's the only person uh, to ever defeat Barack Obama in any election. Wow. Uh, Barack Obama ran against Bobby Rush and was defeated. And wow. so, um, you know, Bobby Rush knows about... Um, the power of political alliances knows about the rainbow coalition concept 
And that concept, I think, you know, led in part to the election of Harold Washington, the uh, first black mayor of Chicago. And I think, um, you know, one of his uh, staff members was David Axelrod. Um, David Axelrod ends up becoming a uh, advisor, one of the top advisors to Barack Obama. Barack right. Obama runs for president on essentially a Rainbow Coalition platform, just like Jesse Jackson did. Right. So this idea of, of multi-ethnic coalitions, uh, I think, has reverberated across time. Of course, it's become mainstream. It doesn't have its uh, revolutionary basis behind it, which I think is one of the reasons why Jesse Jackson doesn't really talk about the Rainbow Coalition, the first one, because it's, it was a militant organization that, that uh, founded it. And uh, he basically mainstreamed that idea, but the idea is the same. It's a it's a bit it's a simple idea. It's hey, let's let's reach out to all communities, and and see what we have in common, and let's form a political base based on that. And um, the people that have have done that have succeeded in yeah. politics uh, for the most part. I love the way you you connected what we tend to think of. Uh, the Chicano movement or the Puerto Rican movement or or even black civil rights where a lot of people are like, well, what's the relevance? Does it even matter? This was way back when. Um, and what you just did in terms of connecting the dots with Jackson and then President Obama, the first African-American president really to use and to come out of that strategy of what was happening in Chicago, that's really, that's quite significant. If, if you're if you're a student out there and you're listening to this, uh, take note. Uh, this is this is really important important stuff, which is it just sort of I think solidifies why uh, it's so important to um, uh, you know to talk about Chicago and talk about Chicago politics when we're talking about um, Latino civil rights and uh, the Young Lords in particular. I mean, I know everybody wants to go to New York right away, but uh, it starts in Chicago, and I think that's really uh, an important thing. Ray, when you you said you worked on this film for twelve years, that's incredible. Um, one of the things that you do in there is you uh, you have uh, interviews and shots of their own real life of these activists, High Thurman and Chacha Jimenez and others that are a part of this documentary in their old age. When you first went to them. What did they say to you? Were they still involved in these movements? And why was it important for you to show them as they are today? Well, definitely. I know, um, you know, I mean, each of the people will say, like, I mean, one of the first things Bob Lee said to me is, I'm not a former member of the Black Panthers. I'm a Black Panther, you know. <laughs> yeah. Chacha too. He was like, hey, I'm the I'm the uh, founder of the Young Lords. I'm the leader of the Young Lords. <laughs> even today. So, even, even, even today. That's incredible. Yeah, I love that. Even today. I mean, so that's the thing. I mean, they don't have this large uh, movement underneath them. But but to tell you the truth, I mean, they're living out the, the you know, the temporal platform and program. They, they still believe in that. And they're still enacting that on a, on a daily basis. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up to date is that, you know, again, I think each documentary that comes out brings the, the history a little bit forward, a little bit forward. And so that was kind of what the only, you know, again, in order to, the, the, that base history is so, you know, took up three quarters of the film. But at a certain point, I had to talk about, hey, so people would ask, well, how come there was no Rainbow Coalition? What happened? So there's a little transition part in the film that talks about, hey, you know, Fred Hampton's killed, Chacha Menes is underground, everybody's hiding. So the movement, you know, everybody kind of dissipated. I mean, people didn't see each other for 20 years, even people in the same movements. You know, people, I mean, and some of it's a post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. Some of it's just like, you know, there's a lot of people afraid uh, to be involved in these movements when people are getting killed that are part of the movements. And so I talk about that a little bit. And then, but, you know, recently, and I think, you know, as we started getting close to the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers or the Young Lords, people started coming out more to talk. Um, enough time had gone by where they had felt comfortable enough to come out and talk about their role in these movements again. And I was able to sort of ride that wave and to get some of these folks to talk. But but literally, um, High Thurman from the Young Patriots met with uh, Bobby McGinnis from the Young Patriots. And they're both in the film and archival footage, but they hadn't seen each other in like 30 years. That's incredible. I and can't. they only live like two hours away. But, you know, literally when these movements were attacked, I mean, people just kind of wanted to get away, to hide, to, you know, um, to really like rebuild a different life. Because, I mean, there was not really much left of their movement. And they were continually being harassed by the police or the local sheriff, 
wherever they moved to for years. That's actually another film you could make is that if you were an activist in the 70s, this harassment didn't end, you know, in, you know, 73 or 4, the FBI would come and visit you, you know, into the oh, 80s, you know. Absolutely. And, and some of some of the work you and I have talked about this, some of the work uh, that, that I've done and others in oral histories, you hear the activists from those days talk about how um, the surveillance never stopped. They were followed for the rest of their lives. It, it impacted their livelihood in every way. That's incredible. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, there was, um, I had done a, a couple of trips to the Chicago History Museum. They have a Red Squad archive there, and, and but you kind of don't know how to search it. You know, it's all, it's card catalog. It's kind of just, you know, it's not organized the way that, you know, would make it easy for someone to find something. Right. And so I had looked and then didn't find anything. I looked, didn't find anything. But what I came across on the internet was that Harold Washington, when he became mayor, okay, hmm. he said, I want the Chicago History Museum to uh, release my Red Squad file. Wow. Okay, so this is in the 80s, right? Yeah. They were surveilling him while he was running for mayor. This in the 80s. You, yeah. you know, we think that Red Squad stopped in the 70s. They were, and, and everybody that was going to Harold Washington's campaigns, the, the, the police were writing down their license plate numbers, their names. And that's then when I saw that, I go, man, I go, so I go, there has to be this stuff there. Because before right. I thought it was there, but I could never find it. So that kind of reinvigorated me to say, you know, I know there's got to be stuff on the young lords. If they're if they're doing this to Harold Washington, who's a, essentially a mainstream politician, right? Imagine what they're doing to the young lords and the Black Panthers. Right. And finally, I was able to start finding these mugshots, and some of them are in the film of Chacha and all of these activists. You know, they're getting arrested, um, and they and they and they had the you know the the sheet, you know, like, and then Chacha's like arrested, like you know June twenty fourth, arrested June twenty fifth. Arrested June twenty seventh. It's like, you know, like almost every day he's getting arrested during a certain period of time. You know, it was like a, a, a campaign to just keep Chacha in jail so he right. cannot run the Young Lords because if you're in jail, you're not running much of a movement. Right, right, yeah, and and uh, and that follows him into the seventies and even when he goes to run for alderman, right, in nineteen seventy four or five, something like that. They're still following him. Yeah, I mean, then you know, it, 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 there was no major movement, so. And, yeah. You know, everything became more uh, surreptitious. Um, we know that the FBI is maintaining files on these folks. Um, again, that's another film, another story. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and again, it's just that that's one of the um, the uh, the things about the FBI is, you know, um, it, it starts and stops. You know, um, you know, around that time is when J. Edgar Hoover dies, and then after that, you had the, re the 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 sort of the um, unveiling of COINTELPRO, which nobody knew about. They had a sense that it was happening, but they didn't know the scope of it. Right. And so when they find out about the counterintelligence operation of the FBI under Jade Hoover, which was targeting, you know, every single Black Panther chapter, all these militant leaders, they had files on members of the Supreme Court, files on Congress people. <laughs> you know, they had crazy stuff. They The FBI had a file that said that uh, Einstein had created a robot that could read people's minds. Wow. I mean, just crazy stuff. Sure. And, yeah. and and it's not just against militant people; it's against mainstream politicians. So again, it's like a almost like a secret. They're functioning like a secret police force. Yeah. Um, under Hoover, and so you saw like there was a um, the Pike Committee in the House, and then um, what was the other committee? I can't remember right now. Yeah. Um, uh, there were two committees, and then they started reeling in the FBI, and so. But I think a lot of that power has has come back over time. Um, and then the, the 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 ability to do surveillance is a lot more sophisticated now. You don't need to necessarily do a wiretap. You could just be outside in a car and then you know record through the walls, you know, of this right. apartment. So I think things are a little different. Um, so I think activists always need to be aware of this possibility. I think a lot of that's the good thing is we are aware of the of the capabilities. We also know we need to you know to step up these checks and balances with these organizations because more often than not they're going to go outside of whatever they're supposed to be doing because they can and yeah. um you know humans run these organizations and humans will uh do what they think they need to do um uh, in order to preserve the status quo and that's one of the great things i one of the i'm so glad i was able to interview um um jack ryan the fbi agent because he basically outlines the fbi's philosophy this is not chacha menacing this is one of the fbi agents Right. Saying, exactly. Like, hey, we did, you know, we saw them, these people as thugs. They were outside the law and we were going to stop them. Right. That's basically what the FBI was about. It was uh, it was personal. 
And, you know, and there was a, a racial element to it because the FBI had very few uh, black agents, had very few Latino agents. And in the 80s, after they did have black and Latino agents, the black agents sued the FBI for discrimination and the Latino agents sued the FBI for discrimination. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that's you know, the I mean, history of the FBI. Yeah, that's and and that's a, a, another great part of the film in terms of uh, uh, of the surveillance that they were under, and it makes it I think that much more frustrating given the fact that they were setting up daycare centers, they were doing breakfast programs. I mean, the kinds of work that they were involved in, um, you know, I, I, it's frustrating to see how uh, our own political leaders would be targeting that and going after them, um, thinking that, that they were radical. Uh, or these that that these radical ideas were somehow harming society, right? Uh, Ray, our time is running out, so I want to get. I have more questions that I want to ask you. Um, the the film um, Judas and the Black Messiah that came out on HBO Max. Um, tell us about that film. Some of you listeners out there might be familiar with it. Um, I, I know that it 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 highlighted um, the murder, the assassination of of, of Fred Hampton. Uh, were you a part of that film in any way? Did did the Young Lords, I mean, the Young Lords kind of have a, a brief cameo in there. I think Chacha does. But uh, it's interesting how your film and that film come out, maybe not the same year, but around the same time. Well, I think the zeitgeist, you know, I mentioned these chapters and books started talking about the Rainbow Coalition. By me making the film, people were coming out of the, uh, uh, out of the woodwork yeah. to talk about <laughs> their involvement, which right. is great, you know, because by making the film, there was this kind of an energy. And, and so, good, you know, things were building up people. Now, a lot more people know about that coalition, which is great. And I'm glad the film came out. I mean, mostly in my mind, I keep what I what I hope people do. This is from watching my film or from uh, watching the the Judas and the Black Messiah is they really need to go back and read the the speeches of Fred Hampton, you know, read what Chachi was talking about back then. I mean, we're filtering both of us, the director of that film and me are filtering this information. But you need to go back to the original text because, I mean, everything that. I think you can see the brilliance of Fred Hampton. Read the, you know, the the interview. Get as much information from as different perspectives as you can about these movements, and you. I think you have a greater appreciation of what these movements were for the communities that they represented. Um, yeah, it's different. I mean, you know, my my only uh, issue with that film is, you know, they have Ch the guy representing Chacha, and and you know they have him with dark skin, and he has a New Yorkian accent. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right, right. Chacha's alive. He does not have a New Yorkian accent. He's from Chicago. Right. <laughs> and he has light skin. And he right. had light skin back in the 69. And he had light skin today. And right. he has he has a uh, green or grayish eyes. Yeah. And so I don't know why you would change that. I mean, why why make an imaginary hero when you have a real hero alive? Yeah. Alive. That, that, that's the part I don't understand. And then the um the other thing that was a little strange was they had a lot of emphasis on the 1966 FBI memo about the black messiah. Um and but that memo was specifically targeted at that time to Stokely Carmichael because Fred Hampton was not really on the scene. Fred Hampton was 18 in 1966, you know, maybe 17. Um, and so the film makes it sound like it was written specifically about Fred Hampton, when in reality it was this idea of attacking every major black leader uh, yeah. forever. <laughs> and I think that's a more powerful indictment of the FBI because basically, if they took down Fred, if there was another leader, they're going to take down the other leader. Exactly. And I think that's a more uh, bigger indictment. Um, yeah. uh, we know that Fred Hampton was uh, was targeted, and we know that because he was eventually killed um, right. by you know FBI, Red Squad, and the Chicago Police. The film is called The First Rainbow Coalition. Um, those of you that are listening now, you can get your libraries to purchase it and purchase the viewing rights from Good Docs. Uh, I believe the website is like gooddocs.org. Um, um, look it up, find it, make sure your library has uh, access to it to show it. Uh, this is a film that if you teach not just the civil rights movement, uh, as important as that is, but if you're uh, addressing questions of multi-ethnic coalitions, if you're addressing questions of politics, if you're addressing questions of gentrification and displacement, um, that uh, that are very, very central. And I think another big part of I think it's what your film does so, so well is it 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 really makes it impossible to ignore the Latina and Latino contributions to uh, not only the Rainbow Coalition, but I think to the movement in Chicago 
and those of you that are students of the movement across the country to think about the 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 ways in which Latinas and Latinos have contributed to the making and to the building of American democracy uh, in, in different places. A lot of it just remains uh, understudied. And I think, Ray, your film, as you mentioned, has really opened the door, kind of reversed things, because I know you have historians like me calling you for sources uh, and calling you to get to, to get a sense of uh, where to start, right? For people that are writing about the Rainbow Coalition, you've been tremendously helpful to me over the years. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, so I want to end uh, with one more question about, and, and you, you've you've hinted at this throughout the interview, but um, you know this is a film that that I really believe, and I know you do as well, uh, has uh, a lot to teach us about 21st century politics. I wonder if you could maybe say something about that the film's relevance and what it means for today's generation of activists. Well, one thing, I mean, you, you met Chacha and, um, you know, the thing is, is this is true of all the leaders I've met. And I've met, you know, leaders from all these different movements, uh, Chicano movement, American Indian movement, uh, Brown Berets. Um, you know, these are not cynical people. I mean, you know, oftentimes we look at all of the um, problems in the world and we think that we can't do anything. I think that's the lesson of the Young Lords. It's the lesson of the Rainbow Coalition is that, you know, um, as Fred Hampton says, you know, um, wherever there's people, there's power. And I think the the young lords believe that, the young patriots believe that. So just a matter of organizing people to change their world around them and to be confident that you can do that. And so that takes a leap of faith. It takes, um, you know, um, you have to believe that you can make change. And I think that's the lesson of the Rainbow Coalition is you can see that they these organizations did transform the communities they were in. Now the thing is, though, is they have. They're, while they're doing that, they're being harassed and attacked by government forces, preventing them from doing what they're trying to do. Um, and so that's just the the hypocrisy of the system. Because we often hear um, for the Latino community, "Oh, you guys need to pick yourself off your up your bootstraps and quit complaining." When these organizations did start creating programs to address these social ills, the government attacked them and uh, prevented them from doing the programs. So it just doesn't make any sense at all. And um, we need to uh, learn the lessons of the of the uh, young lords, Black Panthers, young patriots, which is basically um, organize. I mean, that's the key. Uh, organ organizing is the way to change society, and doing it in a principled way, having a platform and program, and also reaching out to all kinds of people. Again, the young lords were a gang; <laughs> they're reaching out to other gangs. Okay, like is the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, reaching out to gangs to try to organize them? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have to, you know, and again, it's like, oh, we don't want to, it's like, you know, I I mentioned to Chacha, he goes, he goes, Ray, the gangs are in the community. If we're going to organize the community, we need to organize the gangs. Gangs, yeah. You need to think about it that way. It's like we're organizing people, right. you know, whatever structure they're in. And, and you know, over time, we saw that people who were in gangs got out of gangs. Once you get to a certain political, you know, once you get to a political education to a certain point, you begin you begin seeing that oh I don't I should not be in a gang and maybe I can do other stuff that's positive for the community, and I think that's again the lesson of the young lords, and these groups were doing these uh, non-aggression alliances with gangs in Chicago. They were attempting that, and the FBI was trying to dismantle those uh, peace treaties uh, by fomenting um, divisions amongst gangs for whatever purpose, because again, everyone would think that it would be good to have gangs stop fighting. The FBI did not believe that in the 1960s. That's great. The film is the first Rainbow Coalition, um, talking to Ray Santisteban, the filmmaker. Um, by the way, uh, we had Ray come to College Station, to Bryan, Texas, to, to screen the film at, at a local theater uh, here in town. Um, uh, you can do it as well. I don't know, Ray, if you want me to promote you in this way, but to screen the film and invite Ray to come to campus. Um, yeah, actually, especially I'm targeting right now the, the Latino Heritage Month, because that's yes. when colleges can bring people in. Yes. Uh, if you're at a college or university, if you want me to come uh, either screen the film on your own or bring me in or bring some of these folks in from the movements, I would love to do it. Uh, I love having these conversations and um, I love sharing the film. Because we missed a lot of it because of the COVID. You know, we weren't able to do it. My film came out right before the COVID hit. And so yes. we're really trying to catch up and, and you know start engaging in conversation. Yeah, I remember we we had we screened the film over Zoom uh, uh during COVID and um uh, Chacha joined us and 
trying to think of who the other gentleman was. I can't think of the name. Um, Might have been uh, Henry Gaddis. Yeah, uh, it was Henry Gaddis. Right, absolutely. Yeah. It was Henry Gaddis. And I remember we got the film going on Zoom. Everybody's <laughs> watching it. There's maybe like 65, may no, actually, there were probably like 100 students on Zoom watching it. And uh, so those of you out there listening, you might have done this. But anyway, uh, uh, Chacha joined into the Zoom conversation and saw that Gaddis was on there and started talking to Gaddis. Uh, and there were people who didn't know who Chacha was, <laughs> who said, hey, is there any way that they could keep it down? You know, we're watching the film. And I just thought to myself, I'm not going to tell Chacha to <laughs> Well, that was, it was always a challenge, you know, it's a different thing, like the Zoom. I mean, I was very afraid of the Zooms before. Yeah. And just imagine that generation. I mean, they never, you know, they're used to dealing with people in person. So exactly. they didn't know, like, if you get on, you're on, you know, like everyone can hear everything you're saying. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, listen, everybody, everybody who's out there hearing this, uh, invite Ray to come out to your campus uh, to screen the film. It's a wonderful film. We had some undergrads meet up with Ray. Uh, to talk about your own personal story and your journey and all of that. Um, and it was just such a really great experience. I know the students benefited from it and the community came out. We had a, a packed theater on a Friday night to see uh, the film. Uh, so consider doing that. Consider having Ray come in and screen the film. It's a fantastic film and get your library to to purchase it. Yeah, for And don't sure. forget to tell them about your book too, because it's another it's another part of the story. Yes, that's right. So one of the reasons that Ray, uh, that that I've gone to Ray a lot, uh, and and he's been helpful to me over the years, is is uh, uh, my recently published book, Apostles of Change, which looks at has one chapter on Chicago. Although the, when I was writing that chapter, and I think I told you this, Ray, the whole book could have been just on Chicago. Um, but I write about the McCormick Seminary uh, takeover by the Young Lords in 1969. Uh, which is when all of this is is going down and and, and so forth. And um, yeah, I mean, I was able to, you know, go to DePaul. They've got some great uh, information. But when I found that collection that Chacha uh, had curated up in, in Grand Valley State, that was a game changer uh, for me. So it makes it a lot easier yeah. to do. You know, you don't have to find these people. And years from now, it's not gonna be, you're not going to be able to find these people. Exactly. So, it's a oral history is the key to, to everything that we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ray, uh, always a joy, uh, sir. Uh, so good to talk to you. Thank you all, all of you out there for listening to HTI Open Plaza. Uh, such a privilege for me to, to spend an afternoon talking to Ray and y'all take care of each other. And Ray, thank you very much. Thank you, Felipe. Great talking to you. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.